0: Like earlier you had mentioned step functions and I don't exactly know what step functions are, but I assume if you weren't using step functions, you would have to do some sort of queue choreography where you're taking like messages yep. off of one queue and then putting them onto a next queue. But like that doesn't like you're not in the business of building queue management. Right. So like right. why build that when you
1: could be concentrating on product development?
2: Absolutely. There,
1: there's function, There are functions that you love less than the functions you wrote. <laughs> <laughs>
2: functions. But right now, that it is. It's is one of the real benefits. When you're using when you buy into AWS or, or GCP or Azure, use everything. Seriously, use everything because that's where the real power lies. Tapping into not just one service, but services tapping into other services. And of course, AWS and GCP and Azure are happy to take all your money, right? (laughs) Because these services cost money at the end of the day. But it gives you a set of options uh, that you wouldn't otherwise have, and it's just easier to write stuff. Welcome to Working Code with your three hosts who never make off by one errors
0: Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim.
3: It is show number 37, and on today's show, we have a special guest. Joining us today, we have we have Brian Kloss on to talk to us about the cloud. He's a little bit of a cloud expert, so get somebody smarter on. You never want to be the smartest one in the room, so that's why we pulled Brian. Amen. But as usual, we are going to start with our triumphs and fails, and it looks like it's my turn to go first, so I'm going to start with a triumph, which is that my recent experience writing a rule evaluation engine aka Semaphore, if you guys have been listening to recent episodes, the feature flag mm-hmm. engine that I wrote for CFML has come in really handy. This afternoon uh, On a task got dropped onto my desk to help out with this project, and um, turned out what was needed for me was to write a rules engine, and sort of like a DSL for uh, for doing that. And I burned through the whole thing in like one afternoon. And I'm really happy. With it. I wrote tests for it and everything. So, oh what? yeah, man. Can, can you Test. expand a little bit on what a rules engine is? Yeah, so Basically, let's see the feature that we're building is like survey questions, but survey questions that you can drop in in different modules of the application, right? so you maybe you have some survey questions you want to add to an event registration or to an online giving form or to a membership sign up and so we want to central they're all going to work basically the same way, so we want a centralized place to have them, and then we want to be able to apply different rules. For whether or not to display any given question on that form. So for a donation form, you might say, we'll only show this form if the total gift amount is over a certain number of dollars or if we're inside of a date range or if there's multiple giving forms. So if you're on a certain giving form, that sort of thing, like allow you to apply rules that are specific to that module to this larger system. and so. The DSL allows you to create rules that are applicable to some random dynamic data that you'll be getting later, applicable to the module where you're using it, and allow those to be evaluated. And it's not technically metaprogramming, but it feels like it should be called metaprogramming, right? It's very, very dynamic. Hmm.
0: Very cool. Yeah.
3: I'll, I'll nod my head and pretend <laughs> so. I understood that. It felt very much like ripping off the, the code that I wrote for feature flags, but I did start fresh.
1: Okay. You wrote Teth. Yeah. I mean, like
3: 12 of them, but.
1: Well. Better than yeah. most of us. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's 12 more than I wrote today. <laughs> uh,
3: so that's me. What do you got going
1: on, Ben?
0: Hey, I'm going to go with Triumph, and that is that I did a vacation. Uh, I saw. I was, was, I was out, up in Vermont. I live in New York. I was up in Vermont from Saturday to Wednesday. and
1: uh, Say hi to Bernie for was, me.
0: It was beautiful, and uh, I, I basically just like zoned out a lot. I, uh, I even had moments where I was sitting there staring off into space and i thought like hey this would be a great opportunity to think about some work stuff like while well, i'm just peaceful and sitting here and i couldn't even i couldn't even hold a thought like nice. it just like it would go into my head and, and then all of a sudden it would be gone and i couldn't concentrate and i just sort of leaned into that and just stared at the trees and the sky and the and the water and it was it was very peaceful so i yeah. feel
2: did you completely unplug no work email no i i,
0: I checked my slack mostly for a sense of camaraderie like i just like to see people doing stuff um, not very often maybe like just a handful of times a day uh, like i'm not responding really or like i'll go with a thumbs up or something like like one of my teammates got promoted while i was gone so i dropped a thumbs up but mostly i don't check email or anything like that really uh, so it was it was pretty uh, it was an effective vacation and i don't, I don't vacation very often mostly cuz
1: it doesn't occur to me but so i, I was going to ask are you normally a good relaxer when it comes to vacations
0: i don't i don't know maybe not I'm not sure we we,
1: yeah like when
0: we vacation we're not like by by the beach type people my wife who does all the planning she's always like go 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 and she has a bunch of stuff lined up so we're like driving around a lot and seeing different places and so there's not a whole lot of downtime but um, when there is that's when I just sort of stare off into space and I enjoy it's my one of my favorite pastimes staring off into space
3: well, yeah, i mean ben you and i have both been working from home full-time for eight plus years now yeah. i think a skill that i did not have when i first started doing that that i have fortunately cultivated over the last eight years is the ability to really disconnect at the end of the work day and on the weekends like that's my time that's my family time and
0: yeah i, I definitely i've talked about this before i i have very strong boundaries around when i'm work working my one achilles heel is i do like to just monitor slack just to I don't know. I just for the heartbeat of it all, it, it doesn't feel like work. Like because I don't respond, it's more just. I, think, I don't know. I don't. Know. It's probably a, it's
1: yeah, a terrarium. It, <laughs> it's a, it, it's
0: probably a bad habit, but uh, it, it doesn't stress me out. So, anyway, uh, Tim, what do you got going on? Well,
1: I'm gonna uh, hey t- three triumphs in a row here. Here we go. One, two, three. Adam, Ben, me. Hopefully, Brian will have one. I'm gonna take a triumph here today. So I built a project and I spawned it, and now for reasons uh, that I uh, the failure that I had that I didn't do due diligence and I have to switch providers for a certain part of this I'm having to refactor but refactoring and changing the code to do new features is a whole lot easier when you wrote it clean mm. in the first place good boundaries right so having good separations of concern having good object models and everything i mean all i'm really doing is just changing it's one part that was generating the xml and i think i talked about this before but you know i'm actually in the the guts of it now i got stuck a little bit because i was going through some personal issues and depression that i was talking about a few weeks ago but got through all that headspace junk and now I'm, i'm like plowing through it i'm like wow this is really great when you can everything is separate out and it's discrete parts and all I'm doing is changing this bit. It doesn't break everything, which is so unlike some of the code from you know, 15 years ago that I wrote that was like you, you change one thing and everything falls apart. So it's like, yeah. You know, writing clean code is really really good. <laughs> so you're telling me all those
3: promises in the book actually do come true.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely Uncle Bob was right. I wish I had read him much earlier in my career. It would have saved me a lot of headaches. So that's my win. Nice. Cool. So that brings us to Brian. Now, Brian, what do you got going on? Our guest of honor. Uh,
3: well, I have a win. Not four, four in a row. What? <laughs> <Okay>. We are <laughs> winners, for so what's what's
1: going going guys.
2: It's bizarre. Uh, so my win is that at long last, my oldest son starts college uh, a week. No way. And uh, yeah. I'm super happy about that because uh, it's been a very long road to (laughs) to get to this point. Um, He is not the most academically inclined person. uh, But one of the few silver linings the pandemic has brought was a year away from school and working in a warehouse with uh, lots of other people who didn't do anything after high school. And he's sort of come to realize that to have the life that he wants, he's going to need to go to college, (laughs) whether he wants to Mm -hmm. or not. Uh, And there was a lot of pushing and pulling and uh, not being truthful and honest about registering for classes and fun things like that. and It's all been settled and everything's registered. And he ordered his books and he's all set up and turned in his immunization forms and has the move-in date for the dorm. So I'm super excited because I know it's going to be really good for him in the long run. And we get our (laughs) 19-year-old in the house, which is also good. Is he he moving? Working in a warehouse,
1: good object lesson in life.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I and mean, it was good for him and he loved the people that he worked with and had great relationships, but it really did give him a perspective on what he had and what he has to do to move forward mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the life that he wants to have as an adult.
1: And I yeah. think that's, that was invaluable. It's, it's great to have a great workplace experience, but when you get the paycheck and go, wow, okay. Right. I, I I can't have this, this, and this, and this. Hmm. Maybe dad was Right. <laughs> Dad is never right,
2: <laughs> right? Dads are we are the meanest dads in the world and we're never right about anything. <laughs> Believe you me, my husband will tell you that. <sighs> yeah. Anytime you ask.
1: It, it's the old uh, Mark Twain quote where when he was 18, his father was the stupidest man in the world. He left mm-hmm. home and came back to visit when he was 24 and realized how much my father had learned in <laughs> those few years <laughs> I was gone. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Is he moving far away or, or staying? Uh,
2: it's about an hour. So I live in Frederick, mm-hmm. Maryland, uh, which is an uh, hour north of D.C., hour west of Baltimore mm-hmm. in the center of the state. And then he's going to Shepherd University in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, okay. which is about another hour west seven. from here. Yeah. Just on the border of Maryland and West Virginia in that area. It's a beautiful little town. They have a great nationally recognized theater festival every year, like really theater festival every year. And it's a good little school. And he's going to be, I think, pretty happy there. Very cool. Well, Congratulations. Cool. Yeah. Very excited. One down. <laughs> Are they all boys? Yeah. Okay. It's a house full of testosterone. <laughs> Five guys and a male dog. So. <laughs> wow. Yikes. Before the our younger two went to camp, it was a struggle to not have our entire first floor smell like feet and dirty socks. <laughs> so as if they've come back, it's like, take your shoes upstairs, take your socks upstairs. Oh, yeah, the, the boys,
3: they just get undressed as they walk down the hall. <laughs>
2: Pretty much. Oh, yeah. There's underwear here, shorts there. It's great.
3: Yeah. Love it. Awesome. All right, you want to lead us in yeah, the topic, sure. Adam? So, Brian, uh, for those that don't know who you are, can you give us a little bit of Go. a primer? Who are you? What's your background? And and how did you become sure. a cloud guru, cloud ninja? A uh,
2: cloud guru? I don't know about that. There's a whole, like, company that calls this. Oh, so really? So, yeah, yeah. They're, actually, they have great That's training sponsors. <laughs> so if you actually want to get up to speed really quickly with some great resources on AWS and other cloud providers, uh, a cloudguru.com is a great uh, service and site. Their trainings are excellent. And they have this really kind of cool playground feature you can do. It's Not inexpensive, but definitely worth it, I think. So a little bit about me, I guess, uh, since you prompted. So I have worked for many years at Johns Hopkins University at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, where I am the senior technology officer working primarily in the Center for Teaching and Learning. And it's our job to do online learning stuff. And one of the things we do crazily enough is we have a learning management system um, that we've built and have maintained for many years. And in spite of the university going through various other learning management systems, they've stuck with ours at the school because they feel it's a superior experience and can do things that the other LMSs can't because we control our own destiny rather than using a a third-party tool. Sounds a little crazy, but uh, it is a differentiator for us. And uh, what's great for me is that as the lead, I get to decide what happens and what does not. And that's I do that. And I also have a faculty appointment there. Uh, I teach community for health science professionals, which is very different than my web development side, I lead a team of six developers and uh, who developed this learning management system, but I also do all this communication stuff. And the two kind of go hand in hand because you know, if you're going to be an effective developer, you're going to be an effective leader or manager, uh, certainly in tech, you have to communicate well. It's a it is the superpower of every great developer and every great manager and leader. And certainly in technology is being able to communicate clearly and effectively about what you want uh, and what you need and document these things and being able to write really well. These are all Super important skills to have. Anyways, the reason why I'm here today uh, is because uh, I've been working with AWS for a while. And I think we first started using S3, simple storage service, back in 2009, maybe even 2008. I can't remember, is when we started using it. And I say to people, if I could go back in time and do everything all over again, I would have started with S3 and put everything there and never put anything anywhere else because it's one of like, it's the eighth wonder Mm. of the world. It really is. It's an amazing, incredible uh, piece of engineering and software and user experience and a whole bunch of other things. And um, you all know me on this podcast, uh, mostly through speaking in the CFML, the the ColdFusion markup language, uh, ColdFusion community. Um, I talk a lot at conferences, both inside and outside the CFL community, CFML community about AWS, because I love talking about it. It's super liberating and freeing for me as a developer because I still write code. And it's super liberating and freeing for me as a manager who wants to have his team do better, provide innovative, interesting features, and for them to grow as professionals. I think that's one of the most important jobs I have is making sure they grow as professionals. Because as we all know, it's super easy to stagnate. It's super easy to look at your job as being like the same thing you did five years ago or 10 years ago. You can get away with a lot of that. But if you don't grow, you'll never really do better for yourself uh, and for the people who are relying on you to grow, meaning your clients, the people that you work with, the people who fund you. Um, so growth is super important to me, and AWS really lets me do that personally and professionally. And then I get to talk about it on forums like this or at conferences. Which is why we asked you here.
0: <laughs> yes. Yo, can I uh, just a tangent for a second on S3 story? So S3 was my first introduction to Amazon Web Services. And we were in this crazy situation. We had a uh, early days in vision. We had this network attached storage device that had, I think, like two terabytes of storage on it or something, which is mind boggling to me. And, but we were eating through it like crazy. And at one point, the hosting provider that we were using came to us and said, Hey, you're running out of storage. We can provision a larger, uh, like a 10 terabyte drive. But like, you have to pay us, it was like $50,000 today for us to be able to even order it from the company that's going to provide it. Wow. And and we were like, well, that's some nice did. data you got there. It'd be a shame <laughs> if something happened to it. And uh, so we were like, oh, that's a tremendous amount of money. Let's see if we can move everything over to S3. And like, literally, we were looking at our burn rate in terms of hard drive space. And we were going through something like, it would have taken like 32 days estimated to eat through the rest of our hard drive space. Mm. So I started learning about S3, and I started I, I had this task that literally ran in a browser and it would grab like a thousand records at a time and then put them up to S3 and then grab the next thousand records. and I literally had it open on my desktop and it was just constantly refreshing and I had that running straight for like 30 days, and it was like, <laughs> it, was like it was like neck and neck to see if we could get all of the files off the drive and and the challenging part
1: it's a literal race
0: the part. craziest part was because we had to we essentially had to dual write the files because we had to write all new files to S3 and to the local NAS the network attached storage and then we would continue to only read from the network storage and then there was a flag that we would flip and then suddenly everything would start reading from S3 and i think we we finally got the flag flip the day before we would have run out of storage. It was like the most stressful time in my life, but it was also like so exhilarating. And S3 to Mm -hmm. Brian's earlier point, like I'll never not put stuff in S3 going forward. Like it just, it's magic. I don't, I, yeah. and, and maybe that like, just to quickly step into like another thought is like, one of the worries that I have with Amazon web services is like, it feels so magical. It feels like, Oh, that's someone else's problem. They've solved that. They're obviously much smarter than I am. But, like, is that kind of a dangerous mindset to have? No. I would say no. I
2: mean, to jump in and and say answer that question, I would say no. Let it be somebody else's problem. Undifferentiated lifting is what Amazon says over and over again, right? Why should it be your job to deal with network-attached attacks storage? Is that your area? Is that Envision's area of expertise? The answer is no, (laughs) not at all. It's not my area of expertise. And and running compute instances, that's not my area of expertise. Or Kubernetes clusters, nobody wants to do that for real, right? And nobody wants to do that. And, And letting somebody else take care of that and paying them sometimes not very much, and sometimes a significant yeah, a amount lot. to do that is in many ways, I think, is the value, right? It, it, if Why do you need people running database servers? Why do you need people running the network hardware and network interfaces and you no know, ex- function execution environments, whatever it is, you got to pay people to do that. And that's not helping your business be any better at helping, in your case, you know, people design and collaborate with one another. And so I think you know, in that sense, it, does it his homework. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, you know. Speaking of the AWS line there, but it also, I mean, it's true for me. I think, Ben, you know, your experience, I, I mean, I've definitely had those browser Yo. page, single page functions that like pull a thousand records at a time and do something with them or 5,000 records. I mean, I've done plenty of migrations that way. I'm ashamed to say, but it's true. But that kind of pattern, you know, the strangler pattern, right? Where mm-hmm. you start having everything in another service in AWS or Google Compute or, or Google Cloud or Azure, and then... At one point, start moving everything over to that thing is a great way to get started. You know, people are always like, well, but I've got to do everything at once. And the answer is no, you don't, right? Yeah. You can start moving stuff over and then at some point flip the switch on everything using feature flags, right? Which I know you're a huge fan of, ben, and Adam <laughs> yeah, was absolutely. talking about earlier, using feature flags to do that kind of work. I mean, you can s- slowly strangle, as they say, it's not the right, you know, not the nicest word, but it's a great way to get started with pretty low investment and pretty low risk. And I think that's what, I think people are just terrified. Like they think I have to move everything to the cloud. And I'll tell you, you know, our primary compute instances are still in our data center at the Bloomberg School of Public Health because of legal reasons yeah. uh, and because of other monetary and business reasons, we can't move them. So for me- It's a hybrid cloud. It's a hybrid <laughs> cloud. Yeah. The worst possible, yeah. the worst of all possible worlds. Um, but for me, what that lets, makes me do is say, okay, what can we do that's completely outside of this? And that's super freeing and liberating. Like I don't have to worry about someone saying, no, you can't put this in AWS because because you have to run in the data center. Well, no, I can just run it in the cloud and that's that and it's fine. And we can explore and play and grow and provide functionality we wouldn't be able to otherwise while still maintaining that sort of core sort of data center or activity that we'll probably never be able to get rid of.
3: Well said. <laughs>
2: you hit all the right Are buzzwords in there. You <laughs> mentioned feature <laughs> I flags. Did. And... Very, very buzzword oriented. So
0: S3 to me feels like A super low entry into Amazon Web Services because I mean, even in the cold fusion world, especially, you can write a file and the fact that you could write to a hard drive or you could write to S3 is almost like completely abstracted away if you're not going to use something like the Amazon uh, SDK. But like the next I want to use Amazon Web Services to me feels like going from S3 to what do I use next? Like then it becomes a significant jump in complexity. Like it's not just a hand wavy over some sort of abstraction. Like now I have to actually start thinking about how to re-architect or completely change the way I think about architecting an application. What do you think is like the next natural ingress into Amazon Web Services?
2: So I think S3 can be the next natural ingress because you and I come from, all four of us at some point have been in a a CFML background, Mm -hmm. right? And the CFML engines make it real easy, as Ben just said, to say, point to S3 or point to a local file system. And it's all kind of abstracted away. But that's just reading and writing files. What we're missing are things like storage classes, Mm -hmm. right? So you don't want to, oh, your file is going to be infrequently used. You don't need sub 10 millisecond response times on those Mm -hmm. files. Put it in in frequent access. It's not gonna be, if it's back of an archival, then put it in one zone in frequent access. And that can save you a significant amount of money every single month, especially as you're moving on from gigabytes to terabytes or petabytes of data that you're storing inside of S3. And you can't do that with our fusion engine. So the next step would be say, okay, let me see how I can use the, in our case, Java SDK or the Python SDK or the Node SDK, whatever it is, to write files to a different storage class. So I can do that automatically and save myself. No. Right. That's a that's an easy sort of or I think a sort of a logical next step
0: because everyone wants to save just a point of clarity, because Tim had mentioned mm-hmm. Glacier, but Glacier is a different service. It's different It's not based. quite storage classes, right? You're talking about something slightly different.
2: Right. It's storage, but it's not request response based storage. Right. It's asynchronous storage in the sense that it can take five minutes to get your file back or up to eight hours to get your and, and, file back. And that's not... People are like, oh, I'll put it in Glacier because it's super cheap. Well, then... It's well-named. You're never going to get the file.
3: Yeah.
2: (laughs) You have to write a whole, like, you know, asynchronous workflow to get the file. But I do understand where you're coming from, Ben. And so beyond S3... I think from an architectural perspective and starting to think in the cloud, think like the cloud, you know, the next steps are things like simple queue service, simple notification service, breaking apart or even event bus or sorry, event bridge. Uh, That's what's called event bridge, thinking about how you break your application down into a series of steps, as Tim was talking about earlier, that are unique and isolated from one another so that you can rewrite a small portion without affecting anything else. Um, so you can use Simple Queue service to say, these things. These are all the things I need to process, right? I have a hundred items I need to process. I need to make a hundred different PDFs. I'm just gonna put them into Simple Queue service then have you know, a cold fusion function or a Python or node function that pulls that back out one at a time and makes that PDF for me. It's a pretty simple service to use. And it gets you thinking is the cloud in the cloud, right? With about issues of asynchronous processing and resiliency and failure and what happens in modes of failure. And just thinking about that around events, yeah. right? Something happens and I respond to it because that's ultimately how the best of AWS really works and the best architectures in AWS really work. So I would encourage folks to look at Simple queue service, simple notification service. They are different. They serve different purposes, but they're super powerful and a great way to start thinking about, and they're easy to use. That's the other thing. They're easy to use. They're not complex like Fargate or Elastic Container Service or the 17 Mm. different ways you can run containers on AWS, but they're simple and they're easy to approach and will help you really think differently about how you build your apps in a resilient and more
1: cloud native way. No offense, guys, but this is the first time I've ever taken this show here, so I'm just yeah, right. I, I Look up SQS. Yeah, okay, yeah, it's exactly what I wrote. Ha- You've a camera in here? Camera?
2: <laughs> but I will say, you know, we're, so one of the things, a uh, project we're working right now is actually one of our last really big data stores, which is about, only about seven and a half terabytes of data is moving out of our data center into the cloud. And we're rewriting the module in our learning management system that stores most of that data. And the developers who are working on it are, this is their first real, like, big, not like a simple Lambda function or just working with S3 or queue that they pull messages off. This is like a full complex workflow that combines, you know, I think at this, this point, it probably has uh, about eight or nine different AWS services combined, uh, making all of this. And for them, you know, even for them, they're like, okay, I got to figure out what's the difference between SQS and SNS. And again, these are learning opportunities that really can transform the way you think about building applications. And for them, it's been eye opening and useful. And we've done a lot of talking back and forth about well, what about this case? And what about a lot about failures? Because if you're working with AWS, you got to deal with failure stuff fails all the time, right? Werner Vogels, the CTO at one point, said, and not these exact words, but basically everything fails all the time. And how do you deal with that? And the great thing about AWS is they do a lot to abstract away some degree of failure for you, like with retries that are built into the SDKs. Yeah. How magnificent and wonderful is yeah. that, right? A call mm-hmm. fails and you don't have to worry about catching it right away because the SDK will retry it up to you know, three or five or however many times you configure to do it. That's awesome. I don't have to worry. So talk about not worrying about things like you know running servers or network infrastructure, Through some of these tools, you don't have to worry about things like retries and handling. I mean, you have to figure it out sooner or later. Things are going to error out permanently at some point, and you got to handle that. But again, it's abstracting these things away and getting people to think differently about what they do. And I I think that's really, for me, again, and I I know I'm going to sound like a broken record with this, but I think it's one of the great powers of AWS and one of the reasons why I really encourage all developers to think about how they might be able to use AWS or another cloud service, because it does make you a better Developer certainly a better architect, but certainly a better developer over time.
3: So you kind of give me a nice little segue there. So the discussion so far has been very AWS heavy, and I know you said you guys use AWS at Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. Do you have any experience with any of the other uh, cloud providers, Google or Azure or anybody? Uh,
2: A little bit with both uh, Google and Azure. I haven't uh, done Oracle, although I've heard actually good things about it, and Alibaba not at all. Even though we have lots of students in in China, things. We stick with AWS because I think it's where we are happiest. There's integrations, as Ben was putting out in the CFML runtimes there. My issues sometimes with AWS is both its great strength and weakness is the number of services that are available. Absolutely, right? yes. 270-some services now in AWS, and it's crazy bonkers, whereas Google has a lot less than that, and Azure has even less fewer than that i think the reason why i stick with aws above all the others and i have dabbled some with azure with like you know, azure data services and cosmos data db and with google with uh, their cloud run uh, environment just to see sort of what that's like with google it's always a question of are they going to kill it right sure. you No, know, that's and i and people joke about killed i mean there's a yeah, twitter yeah. account killed by google yeah. right but <laughs> this is a serious issue right you're building yeah. something you're like i don't want this service to suddenly disappear in two years because google's like we don't want to do this anymore we're getting out of this business. And with Google, you never know. And I know they just announced some enterprise agreements to like stick you know, have things stick around longer. I still don't trust them. And yeah. Azure, you know, people used to say, or still sometimes say, the cloud's not reliable, stuff goes down. Well, Azure goes down a whole lot more than either Google hmm. or AWS. AWS has had only two major outages in the last Almost five years. One was an S3 outage and one was an outage related to Kinesis and streams. Mm. And that was an, it was one was a fat finger thing. And the other one was they tried to reboot too many instances at one time and didn't have resiliency there in terms of concurrency, in terms Mm. of the number of threads being spawned for these services as they rebooted it. Anyway, two major outages in five years. Azure had like five outages last spring because of the pandemic and the sudden crush on Microsoft 365 services and teams and things like that. They just don't have the same scale and resiliency mm. that AWS has.
1: AWS, has. We got hit by that. Yeah. yeah. And brain.
2: you could be a small shop. I mean, we only have you know, at any given time, uh, we only have about 7,000 students who use our LMS. But I'll tell you, even if only had five students and one of them couldn't get on there or couldn't get access to their materials because AWS is down, it's like a huge crisis and everyone freaks out and it's not reliable. And why do we use these things? So it, it does make a, a big difference for me. I understand. You know, I think if I had started all over and I was 100 percent like, let's say, a .NET person, a Windows shop, Azure makes a lot of sense because Microsoft and their traditional embrace and extend uh, sort of approach to things makes it really easy to work with Azure uh, if you're a mm-hmm. end-to-end Windows shop and Microsoft shop. And I think there are some advantages there. I mean, I think it's kind of nice that Cosmos DB can do a bunch of different things, not just a you know, relation. It can be a relational store, or an object store, or key value store. It's it's kind of interesting, but For me, AWS is where it's at because
1: there's always something new that I can play with and explore. We bring up deprecations or just shutting things down. So just recently I got an email from AWS. We have a lot of stuff in AWS. So anything, we're all credit card and and financial stuff. So we we do host, we're hybrid as well, but it's actually is the best. I can't afford PCI compliance in, in AWS. So we keep all the credit card stuff local. But anything else and there's a lot that's not related directly to that is in aws but they recently sent me an email that says hey we're shutting down ec2 classic yeah, oh, yeah i got that too you got that email and i'm like i don't know <laughs> if we're on it they're like they said we had an instance but, but it was which in like one oregon. but it was yeah but which one and it was in oregon i'm like we always keep our stuff in north america like virginia what's And so that is one fear I do have is like, sure, today it seems like EC2 VPC version is, you know, that's where it's at 10 years from now. It's like the the thing about AWS is it's so magical. I never have to touch the stuff. Right. And so my fear is like, what happens, you know, five years from now or 10 years from now? And they're like, hey, we're shutting down EC2 uh, VPC. And I'm like, oh, crap. I'm I'm 60 years old now and
2: (laughs) got to relearn everything.
1: (laughs) Yeah. What do we do
2: now, guys? It's a a pretty unusual move on their part to be blunt. I mean, they just this is not something they do on a regular basis. And I think they're doing it because they kind of feel that they have to for security purposes or for you know some new service that they're using internally at AWS or some certification they need to get, right? That's why they're doing it. And even what's happening, they're not really shutting, I mean. Yes, they're shutting EC2 classic down in the sense that you can't run an EC2 instance outside of a VPC or virtual private cloud anymore. But really what they're just going to do for those who don't take any direct action, my understanding is that they'll just put y- you have a default VPC in your account, virtual private cloud in your account, and they'll mm-hmm. just eventually just move that EC2 instance into your default VPC. Now that may cause issues with networking and ing- ingress and egress and all those other good things, but you know, the instances aren't going away, they're just being migrated over into yeah. your own personal uh, vpc it's going to cause problems for people and i think uh, we might even have some i'm like why are we getting this notice i don't think we have yeah. any in there but we probably do that's a great thing about aws right the aws bill is like what is this 11 cents i can never find that <laughs> last 11 cents right
1: <laughs> it's some instance that somebody spun up yeah. in, well geez, i did find it can... and it was like some t- it was like some old test container oh. when we first started out and we ran it up just you know, to test out amazon and like and we never use it for anything. It's not even it's not even doing anything. Yeah. So it's like, okay, just I finally found it and killed it. But that's gonna like, be somebody's job. You know, somebody has to go through right.
2: and look at all your resources and be like, why is this here? I did that like two weeks ago with my team and I shut off about fifty dollars worth of stuff that we're getting charged for every month, fifty bucks, which is you know, six hundred bucks a year not You know, a huge amount of money, but it's not insubstantial. $600 savings is a $600 savings, right? A year. And it was because people had done test stuff and were trying things out and they just left it running. And I'm like, no, (laughs) kill your shit. That's what you're supposed to do. Kill it.
0: Take it down. (laughs) Just got to (laughs) quit. Yes. Have you ever just... Turn something off to see what would break. Um, I'm not, I don't live that (laughs) dangerously. Oh, I have, I
2: have. It's a a great idea and you should, like everyone says, oh, you should do it, right? Chaos engineering, you want to have fault injections. You want to do all this stuff that will break your stuff and to make sure it's super resilient. I don't want to mess my stuff up. I'm I'm still too much in the mindset. It's like cattle, right? I mean, patents are not cattle, right? I'm still like, no. There there are... I know what yeah. this does, and I don't want to break.
3: There it. are a very few things that we don't turn off because we're a little bit worried that they're not going to come back up clean, and then we're hosed for mm-hmm. weeks or whatever while we get that sorted out. Absolutely, absolutely. We do the same. Like we do, uh, we're doing more and more with like Kinesis
2: and Kinesis Firehose and writing data, temporary data log data, analytics data to S3 using Kinesis Firehose, which is a service that basically lets you just take like JSON objects and just keep pumping them as fast as you can into this Kinesis Firehose stream. And then it writes it, transforms it and writes it into text files of varying size in, in S3 simple storage service. It's super useful. It's great for long-term storage of data that, you know, can sometimes do fun things like sit in a relational database when it really doesn't need to be there after a long period of mm. time. We've all put logging data in relational <laughs> databases, say so don't say you have, uh, or yeah. auditing data, or we have you know, there are requirements that we have around students and how long we have to keep their data. You know, it has to be eight years in some places, 10 years in others. And we're past that point. We're like, let's get rid of this old data. But people still will someday, somebody will be like, oh, you know, that student was in my class in 2008. Mm-hmm. I need to know if, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. We just keep pumping that sort of old data after those points through these Kinesis Firehose streams into S3, where it's super cheap to store. Uh, And then if they really need it, there's this really awesome service called Athena uh, in Amazon that lets you query text files, right? query data stored in text files, which sounds kind of crazy, but it's amazing and powerful and a great way of storing all your data really in a sort of long-term way uh, inside Mm -hmm. of AWS when you really don't need it inside your relational database. Mm -hmm.
0: How, How does something like, so going from one extreme where I make a request to a server and it immediately responds, to something like athena which i assume is go query this like terabytes worth of object store does that just mm-hmm. Do they just say, all right, we'll yeah. just email you when this is done because to sit here sort and stand of. would be cool. Cr-
2: so there's a, uh, to kind of briefly explain, there's this sort of pattern that you see in a lot of AWS stuff uh, where it's not an immediate request response, where it's an asynchronous call because most of their stuff is asynchronous. And this is the case if you ever use step functions, which is a uh, sort of workflow execution environment that's super powerful that lets you tie together a whole bunch of AWS services. And I've talked about it and you can i have videos about it on youtube and stuff anyways so basically in those kinds of situations where you might have to scan terabytes worth of data and query that you make a request and amazon says cool here's an id here's a token right we're going to put it into our internal queue and it'll run and it usually runs pretty quickly but if you're scanning five terabytes of data it's not going to be instantaneous obviously just check back later and see if this job is done Mm. and you make another request saying hey here's my token is this job done or not? Yes or no. And if it is, then it says, here's with that re- yes response, you can say, okay, cool. Now give me the results from that. Uh, and that's the case how you know, Athena works and step functions work and another a number of other services as well. So it's a, it's not request response. It's a little more involved than that, but it allows you to do crazy stuff like run a select star on five terabytes worth of data and not worrying about, you know, bringing the whole system down.
0: (laughs) Does it have to? Not
2: that you would ever do that. I would never recommend select star for any (laughs) reason.
0: Does the- You can do it if you want. All of the objects that queried in an Athena query, do they have to have a similar structure? Like how does-
2: They do. So it doesn't do fun things like joins. I mean, you can kind of set up multiple tables in there, create sort of virtual tables. So it uses another tool called Glue, AWS Glue, which is a sort of (laughs) catch-all crawler data engine thing. Uh, a schema. It's a schema generator, really. And you say, okay, this these objects are all going to have a user ID, an email, column name, column type, t- just like a normal table would. And then it queries that or it crawls that, it scans it and makes sure that all the stuff is there. And if it doesn't exist, then it's going to throw an error mm, gotcha, right, okay. uh, for you. But that's pretty much what it does. Is it sort of doing real-time sort of schema translation and uh, putting it all into memory somehow? I don't know what these huge memory things are that they have there inside of AWS. Not just gigabytes, but terabytes of data for these things. Uh, puts it into memory mm. and then winds up doing the querying on it. It's pretty remarkable. And again, all abstracted away. <laughs> bananas. Don't worry about the thing. <laughs> it's like magic. It is. You're right, Ben. It's like magic.
1: The Candy Man. Yeah. I, I'll tell you my biggest beef. All right. Let me just give do me, it. Let's lay it on here. I got beef. Biggest beef with them. You got beef. Oh, yeah. So their documentation. Mm. They got a lot of it. Right. Oh. But it's like it is. They change. They change the screens. They change so much so fast that by time the doc, you get this documentation, it doesn't match. Yep. You're following a simple tutorial, yep. right? It's even their stuff. It's not someone else's blog. And you're following it along. And it's like, all right, look for this and do this. And it's like, it's not there. Right. It's completely different. And that, and it's not like I've done it. I do this all the time. And it's like, why can we not sync this up? Can you not update your documentation at the same time you change all your Hmm. damn screen or
2: or just provide simple, clear examples of how to do things? I mean, I get it. Their documentation is thorough, right? For every function call, you get all the sort of the properties that go in it or, you know, all the methods that are part of a service. Or if you, and they like, you can do it via the SDK or the CLI or cloud formation, but or sometimes cloud formation. But there's just too much. And, mm. it, and I think that's AWS's biggest problem right now is too much, right? Service differentiation. What is the difference between ECS, EKS, and Fargate? right what's right. the big difference between the three of those and yes i'm sure you no know, adam you probably know the difference between the three of them very well but you know explaining that to somebody who's getting started with this or even someone who's relatively familiar with aws who wants to move into container based services that's really hard and they keep adding can you explain the difference between like the 17 different um what's their their big machine learning thing uh, sagemaker right sagemaker studio versus sagemaker pipeline versus sagemaker whatever i mean just go Google AWS SageMaker, and there's literally 17 different services or 20 different services there. And it's, what are these all for? So service differentiation is a problem. There's too much. Documentation, there's too many options. It's difficult to figure out what you're supposed to do. And I've had the same experience to him, just trying to get started and following people's you know, blog posts that seem clear and well-written, but things have changed. And those options are no longer supported. Or The screens, if you're using the console, you can't follow along in those same ways. And, and that's a challenge. but if they really want to make developers happy, which they say they want to do, and they're customer obsessed, then coming up with simple, clear examples for the documentation for all aspects of it is super important because otherwise we can't do the things that yeah, we want to do. Right. It should take us a day to figure out how to hook up an SQSQ to a Kinesis stream. It shouldn't take a full day to do that. It shouldn't anyways. I mean, it's not that hard, but to the uninitiated, it easily could because there's so many options and so many different knobs you and can you have turn. to learn a whole language, powerful, but frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it is aws is its own language i mean cloud formation is its own language really at the end of the day right uh, it's yeah. own, i mean it's a dsl but it's own, it, in a very real sense its own language and to the outsider looking in it's super frustrating and
1: really daunting i i, I kind of wish we had carol i mean i know we're you, we invited you on because carol's out this week <gasps> oh, but uh i'm your second choice but, uh, then. <laughs> well i mean she she's the original beetle you're pete best but anyway that um, works for me <laughs> But yeah, I mean, she had some issues with AWS and doing some stuff, but she definitely would be picking your brain right now. Yeah,
2: it's, yeah, it can be super frustrating. Days lost to just trying to figure out how to make things talk to each other or, heaven forbid, figuring out the IAM permissions, oh identity access management right? permissions yeah. for things. That's like, again, I, I understand Darn. now why that's why there are companies where they have like a whole group whose only job is to work in IAM and IAM permissions because it is yeah, such... It's like,
1: it's like black magic.
2: It is like, it is black magic. It is. and I, Yeah, colon star. <laughs> <whatever> this, <laughs> okay. Oh, God. All the resources, all the people. All, and that is no, why you can't time. be that's, PCI compliant, Tim. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh,
0: well, one thing <laughs> that, that when you talk about having to learn a different language to make sure that everything talks effectively to each other, I, I think that's also one of the big cognitive steps is that, when I'm developing application code and it's all right there in the application,
3: mm-hmm.
0: I, I make a tweak and I deploy it and it just works. Like I didn't have to do anything else. When I then start to consume Amazon services and then have Amazon services talk to each other, emit events and consume events, it's, it's like as a new person, I don't even know, do I do that programmatically? Is it, is it quote unquote wrong to like actually just log into the console and manually set up a bunch <laughs> of stuff and like provision tokens uh-huh. and then put them into my application like that feels so dirty because it doesn't feel reproducible right so like but it works
2: right it works it gets the things yeah. done in your app and i think that's again one of the real challenges that aws has um, because ben i totally feel your pain i mean again the sort of the my, the big project we're working on right now or one of the big projects we're working on right now again the sort of workflows and the architecture diagrams for these things are huge yeah. with like 50 or sixty icons. <laughs> On, on the screen for this one service, right? And people talk about this and, and experts who work in particularly the serverless area in AWS will say, look, yeah, it looks daunting. It looks complicated. But, you know, this all this complexity was being hidden by your local app, your runtime, whether it was .NET or ColdFusion or whatever it was, that was all hiding that from you, right? You just have to deal with it in this very kind of like decentralized, fragmented kind of way. But the advantage in the long run is you have things that are super resilient. And if you want to swap something out or add a new piece of code or functionality or an entirely new workflow, you just do it. You say, boop, insert here, and it just does it, Mm. right? Or you could say, I'm going to subscribe now to this SNS topic. So instead of like three different services or three three different functions, going to listen to this SNS topic and execute code based on the data that comes in, I can add a fourth. I can drop one out. I can do whatever I want. The other things don't know. The other things don't care. And like Tim was saying, it makes for a really clean working environment in the long run uh, to make sure that things are truly isolated, truly separate, and you're really thinking about resiliency as well as failure paths, as well as the happy path there. Um, so it's just a different way of thinking. And I get it. I mean, we use cloud formation for some of our stuff, um, but not for everything. <laughs> and a lot of times it's in our dev account, we build in the console, and then we figure out how to make a nice cloud formation template out of it, and then we put that into production. And even then, sometimes it's like, it's just easier to make changes in the console, which isn't always good. But again, you're like, I don't want to break stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't want to blow everything up in production. The console Uh, lets me do that. You
3: mentioned earlier, like the cattle versus pets thing. I I like to think of those as like cattle, but we give them names,
1: right? Like this is Betsy.
3: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, Betsy.
1: All right. You want to get
3: into a user yeah, sure. questions so brian asked uh, what are the dangers or benefits of quote-unquote cloud lock-in and do you think they're, they're overblown is it maybe just a case of trading one set of problems for another
2: Yes. Yes and yes. Yeah. So vendor lock-in is always sort of the thing. It's like, oh, I can't just use AWS. I've got to use AWS and Azure and GCP because I don't want to be locked into one. Mm -hmm. Now you have three sets of problems instead of one. Seriously. The whole multi-cloud thing, the the people that I listen to, they're like, just don't do it. It's a nightmare. And the more I've looked at it, I'm like, I wouldn't want to do that either. As Tim was saying, it's hard enough to keep just what's in AWS in your Mm -hmm. head. Now you're trying to mm. keep what's in AWS in your head and what's in Google in your head and what's in Azure in your head. And they all do things differently. Is there lock-in? Sure. On a certain degree, but there's lock-in when you choose to write in Python, when you choose to write in Node, when you choose to use MySQL versus SQL Server or heaven forbid Oracle. Or post- oh, there's, <laughs> Postgres. Postgres. Postgres, right. There's always a certain degree of lock-in there, right? I mean, how many people have actually moved their databases? Right from from my sequel to postgres or oracle to postgres or whatever tim's raising his hand he's saying that's me <laughs> it's not really common because it's really super difficult to do and there's a in part a some cost fallacy there but there's also it's like you know this is not our what we should be doing there's not unless there's an extraordinarily good reason to switch from one to the other which there rarely is yeah. i don't it's, it's not worth it and for me i'm like look yes i'm not in a business where i have to worry about aws being a competitor to me i get why walmart was like okay we need to get off AWS and move elsewhere. And our vendors should not be on AWS as well, because we don't want them looking at our traffic and our access patterns. Because AWS does that, they're really upfront. They're like, hey, look, we develop new services based on the traffic and access patterns and questions that our current customers ask us. So if we see lots of people doing ML analysis on customer interactions or purchases, then we're going to build a service around that to help abstract some of that work away for people. And we're going to use it ourselves. I mean, remember that, Pretty much everything that Amazon builds into AWS is a service that they use themselves or have used themselves first, mm-hmm. whether it's look out for vision, whatever that is. You know, that's a, It's a machine learning service to help find defects in products that are created in a factory, mm-hmm. right? Like, well, why do, would AWS do that? Well, think about the number of products that AWS actually makes themselves mm-hmm. that they sell on Amazon, right? Right. It's Amazon selling building products on Amazon. So they're doing that. They have the service and they're going to sell it to other industrial customers who build products and they can like have a machine learning algorithm that sort of looks at the pictures and like, ah, there's a defect in that one. Pull it off the line. Right. So they, this is what they do. They eat their own dog food every single day of the year. Which is not, can't always be said about Google and can't always be said about Azure and the products and services Mm -hmm. that they provide. Although Microsoft does a lot more dog fooding um, than Google does. So I don't know. I'm getting off topic there. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, But lock in, no, I I wouldn't worry about it too much. AWS is not going anywhere. Azure is not going anywhere. I wish I could say that Google Cloud is not going anywhere. But um, if it doesn't become profitable in a couple of years, I wouldn't be surprised if they say, you have a 90-day time or a 12-month timeline to get off Google Cloud.
1: Um, <laughs> really? Wow. Seriously. Yeah, I, I agree. totally agree with you, Brian. Because, I mean, the things, like I say, we use a lot of AWS. And, and the, the reason we continue to stay with it is because, one, I mean, if you look at AWS's or Amazon's budget, most of their money comes from AWS. Yep. I mean, Amazon.com and all that, It's they make some money, but not nearly as much. Everything is funded by AWS, right? So that's driving their profits. They're going to continue to uh, it. I'm pretty invest sure, it. it's didn't Jeff Bezos money. just
3: use the the profits from Amazon and AWS to take a four-minute vacation in outer space? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he but did. you know what? That's
1: a drop that's a drop in the bucket. It's a total drop in the bucket. It, and they're going to i just feel they're going to be around right they're, They they have a foothold in it and that's their money maker so if they're making money off of it yeah. they're going to keep it around so if, if it's going to die it's going to be because like some great new thing comes out of the blue and that hasn't yeah. happened yet so don't worry don't premature the optimize. thing that i worry about is all the other competitors dying off and then amazon going oh yeah. we have a monopoly our price has just tripled yeah Well, they kind of did have a monopoly for a good while. I mean, Azure wasn't a thing for a while. Google, I mean, they're all pretty new compared to them. One thing that, Brian, earlier you had talked about, undifferentiated heavy
0: lifting. And I think part of the benefit of buying into a vendor whole hog is that you get to outsource some of the nitty gritty stuff that you would have had to deal with. Like earlier you had mentioned step functions. And I don't exactly know what step functions are, but I assume if you weren't using step functions, you would have to do some sort of, queue choreography where you're taking like messages off of one queue and then putting them onto a next queue but like that doesn't like you're not in the business of building queue management right so like why build that
1: when you can be concentrating on product development absolutely there's functions that you love less than the functions you wrote
2: (laughs) (laughs) but right no that it is It's one of the real benefits when you're using when you buy into AWS or, or GCP or Azure use everything Seriously, use everything, because that's where the real power lies, tapping into not just one service, but services, tapping into other services. And of course, AWS and GCP and Azure are happy to take all your money, right? (laughs) Because these services cost money at the end of the day. But it gives you a set of options uh, that you wouldn't otherwise have, and it's just easier to write stuff. I mean... I, I. Like I said earlier, we can't put our core compute instances in uh, AWS, even though we have EC2 instances. We have lots of compute running inside of AWS because of reasons from Hopkins, Uh, but we could do so much more, right? It would be even more freeing and liberating for us because there's a lot more that we could do that way. And I wish we could do that. So I don't worry. I don't, lock-in doesn't doesn't keep me up at night and in cost increases, don't keep me up at night. You know, Microsoft's not going anywhere. So at the very least, there's going to be Azure and and AWS and probably Oracle and certainly Alibaba as well. Alibaba is not very well known uh here in the west but they're huge uh, in an apac region and they're not going anywhere either so
1: i think we're going to see significant but you can't host any picture of Winnie the <laughs> no you
3: <laughs> cannot
1: No, you cannot uh, that is correct because gping will, will shut that's it right. down I
2: don't, how
3: do we move on from that
1: sorry i'm the disruptor it's
2: no, a perfectly legit question right it's a pre- yeah. if you have customers in china you got to think about that stuff and yeah. you know who's going to see yeah. your data
3: and who will have control over it yeah Censorship. Sure. Yep. So definitely not speaking from personal experience. <laughs> if when you were new to the cloud, yeah, yeah, for a, a friend, friend of mine, if, if you, when my <laughs> friend was new to AWS, they set up a VPC and maybe didn't do the best job of you know, locking it down and, and configuring everything to be secure and happy and done well and done right. Would my friend be better off starting from scratch with what they've learned since then, or should they try and fix the the mess that they've made for themselves? That is an excellent question. Uh, and I feel for your friend
2: because <laughs> I'm doing this right now with uh, organizations and control tower, which are Uh, two tools that let you sort of define your accounts and put guardrails and centralized billing and all sorts of fun things like that. Because like with many people, I started out and I was like, oh yeah, AWS, cool. Here's this one account. And we do everything in this one account. Terrible idea. Like we've learned over the years and AWS says all the time, don't do it. It's a terrible idea. Meaning you'd have different accounts for different things. And you could build that out, but managing five accounts isn't so bad. Managing 25 accounts Is shitty and managing one hundred and twenty-five accounts is even worse. So yeah, so I'm sort of in the same sort of boat right now with thinking about redoing that. And but migrating is never easy, right? Migrating is never easy, and I think like with all things compute, there are trade offs to what you want and need to do. So I would ask the question of your friend: (laughs) Are there significant and serious threats to with the current configuration of your VPC? And if there are, then yes, it's absolutely worth it to do it to
3: do which to start Start from
2: rebuild, do it the right way that time. Because then you got to migrate all your EC2 instances in mm-hmm. there or move your elastic network interfaces, all that stuff. And maybe that's not a terrible thing. Maybe it's, again, pretty straightforward and less of a, not don't look at too much downtime or anything like right. that. But if there aren't significant threats to the security of the data and the instances that are in there, it's the question of, is that really worth your time? Right. Is the 150 hours, 200 hours, whatever it's going to take you to do this. And again, moving everything into a new VPC is not trivial
3: at all. Yeah. Um, and is it worth it? Keeping everything running well, while you're doing it. What could you be doing that? with
2: that yeah. time otherwise? I, I wish I could have a... Yes, absolutely for, for do real. it. But no. I, I, it's that For me, like, and the same thing with organizations for me, it's been a long time. And I got to the point now we have enough people and enough accounts. And I'm like, I need to do something better. Uh, because right now it's all in my head, largely. Sure right? And that's a terrible place for stuff to be. I try to document some of this, but you know, you're talking about secrets and account management and it's a bad place for all that stuff to live is in somebody's head. So I'm like, Nope, I need to finally bite the bullet and do it even though it's going to take time and effort. And there's going to be potential disruptions as a result,
3: Uh, because in the long run,
2: I'm not going to be in my job forever. Uh, I better not be. Uh, So it's good for me to do that. And before it gets even crazier and more difficult to
3: manage. Okay. I will pass that, that information on to my friend. Thank you. Please do. (laughs) You'll be glad to hear it. This was just a a, a personal question from me. And I know I haven't heard a whole lot about their certifications more recently, but I know that they at least at one point did offer certifications. You could become like a, you know, EC2 certified or or AWS certified that you knew all their stuff. Is that really worth getting? Does it do anything beyond getting you past HR? Or
2: mm-hmm. depends on who you work for, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a really good blog post. If, if you aren't familiar with Corey Quinn, oh, yeah. his company, the Doc Bell Group, they do uh, Screaming in the Cloud as his podcast. Last Week in AWS is his weekly newsletter, bi-weekly newsletter. It's awesome. biweekly, weekly semi-weekly, because it comes out twice a week. They did a blog post about certifications that I think is really great. And, and you should everyone should take a look at it um, because I think it very much mirrors what I feel about it, which is... If your job is going to reward you for it, like you work for the federal government, you work for a large organization or corporation that rewards certifications, do it, right? Do it because it's going to mean more money for you uh, in your weekly paycheck. So absolutely. Otherwise, it's in the rest of the tech world, it doesn't matter a whole lot. If you like getting into the private certification lounge at reInvent, then <laughs> you need to do it, right? Yeah, it's important to some people, having that private lounge and the good snacks they have in there. And the you know, you can eat Jeff Bar and other mucky mucks at AWS in the certification lounge. But beyond that, it doesn't offer a lot of real benefits. You know, for my understanding, people that I talk to who work in AWS as well outside of my job and where I work, it, it doesn't make it that much of a difference in hiring. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a big resume, If you can't say, here's a project that I worked on and we use these services and we did all this in AWS and talk for a long time about that project in depth and detail, a real world project, then certification can help you sort of get your foot in the door with companies that are looking to hire uh, folks with AWS experience. But beyond those circumstances, it's not, Hmm. I I don't think it's that valuable. And maybe it's because I've never taken the exams, but I also feel like, you know. I don't need to, right? Because right. I'm going to learn on my own. I'm going to develop this level of expertise on my own. And I'm going to take it you know, th- through my workplace and to my colleagues. And I think that's uh, what's ultimately yeah. most I mean,
3: to the people. previous point about the documentation going out of date almost before it goes gets published, I was kind of wondering, like, is, is that sort of the same thing with certification, right? Does the information change so fast that the certification is outdated? when you get it.
2: Well, the certification tests you on things that are more established, Mm. right? And it's not, you're not going to be certified on Lambda. You're not going to be certified on step functions, although I'm sure they're developing a serverless architect certification. But even then, most of those questions are going to be about things like SQS and SNS that have been around for a long time or the basics of the functions. I mean, I issue you also, I've done some practice exams with the AWS certifications. I'm like, well, maybe I'll do it. And sometimes they deal with real minutiae real minutiae of you know vpcs of ec2 instances of billing of cloud watch metrics and alarms and it's like i don't need to be tested on that right <laughs> that's not how i should be putting i can my google that time. yeah i want to build crap <laughs> right i can google that i can google mm, that if yeah, i really yeah. need to know um, i mean some of these are gotchas and there's a lot of little gotchas with aws around service limits and retries and things like that so you, you should be aware of it but
1: that's stuff you learn
2: as you develop with the services themselves
1: right so let, so let me ask you, you talk about hiring. Mm-hmm. So we are in the process of trying to hire someone to manage our AWS stuff. What are, as a person who hires other people that might be doing this, give me a couple golden questions, right? Little nuggets here to drop on them to figure out if they know their right. stuff.
2: So I think the best question to ask that I always like to ask is tell me about a project that you were in charge of or a lead on. And what did you have to do? How did you implement it? What were some of the challenges? And what would you do differently next time? And just let them go with that and ask follow-up questions based on those things. Um, because you'll know pretty quickly, if you have any sort of familiarity, even you know, relatively passing familiarity with AWS and building a couple of small projects, whether or not they know what they're talking about, whether or not it was a sort of a real project, the level of complexity, uh, the challenges they encountered. Was it, oh, we had to move all of our files in our image database up to S3? cool. So (laughs) what else did you do with it? Was it, it I just literally FTP a terabyte worth of (laughs) files up there, or was it that you actually had to build a service? And what did you do about IAM permissions? And did you do anything with like uh, storage classes or AWS batch for processing those images? I mean, there's lots of opportunities for you to sort of ask sort of follow-up questions in there to see really what was the depth of their experience. Um, So I think by having them describe that project and what worked and what didn't in particular, what the challenges were, you really learn a lot about somebody's skill and experience with AWS that can't be sort of faked by just dropping buzzwords. Right. We did a, oh yeah, we had a SageMaker service that ran on Elastic Container Service that talked to AWS Batch and then did four different sizes for each image. Okay, so- Route 53. To just drop more service names in there. But you could easily ask a follow-up question about any one of those. (laughs) and say, well, what was it like working with EKS? I mean, what were some of the challenges with EKS and running pods and stuff, being tasks being killed and stuff? And if they can't come up with even like a good explanation of that, it's pretty clear they don't really know what they're talking about. But
0: along the lines <laughs> of the complexity of Amazon Web Services and, and getting things to talk to other, are there, I don't want to call it anti-patterns. I, I think we've probably all had moments in our career where we read a book on on programming patterns and then we over apply those patterns in our next you know, few months of work do you ever see people like use DynamoDB when rds like would have been overly sufficient and like why go through the complexity of some totally new database model like do, do you see things like where people just kind of go off the deep end because they're excited yeah
2: yeah absolutely well, i think uh, it's really easy to do that, that like with all things you know and all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail, right? And AWS provides you with lots of different hammers. And I've been certainly (laughs) guilty of this myself on more than one occasion. I'm like, oh yeah, SQS is the best thing ever and we're going to use it for all of our things. And oh yeah, well, it doesn't really work for this, but we're going to make it work because, well, no right? I can't use SQS for all of my asynchronous messaging. There's lots of other tools for that, right? SNS has a very different set of requirements, different set of use cases, but that are overlapping in some cases. Sometimes uh, EventBridge is something that I'm learning now and sort of getting involved in. It's easy to over-apply a single service. It's just like, it's just like a pattern, like you're saying mm-hmm. there, Ben. It's, I think it's very common for you to be comfortable with a service and then overapply that in many different scenarios. And DynamoDB is awesome. Don't get me wrong. Dynamo is awesome. It's not awesome at everything. Right, it's not good at you know, aggregations. It's not good if you don't know your access patterns. Mm-hmm. Like, it's awesome if, like, here's the data that's going to come in, and here's how it's going to come in, and here's what I need to query, and I'll never need to change that. Dynamo is totally awesome, and people get bit all the time trying to do joins. Right, mm-hmm. in particular, they're like, I come from a relational da- background, I'll just use DynamoDB, and I'll have my users table and my store table and my products table, and that's where it all goes to hell in a handbasket really, really fast. It's it's learning to think in a different way but then also the cloud native way, but then also not using one service for everything Mm -hmm. you might need to do. Although S3 is probably that service.
0: (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) I mean, even just earlier when we were talking about Adam's friend with the VPC issue, (laughs) do you, if I'm, I'm like, let's say I'm buying in, I'm excited, I want to try some Amazon Web Services stuff. Should I try to, Refactor an existing piece of functionality, or do you think it'd be best to I have something new I want to build? You no know, maybe it's part of an existing application, but it's a new feature, and like let me use the new feature as a way to experiment or i don't know I don't know what the better move is. I don't either.
2: I'll give you the typical Hopkins answer. It depends. (laughs) That's a typical answer we give everyone for everything at Johns Hopkins. It depends. You know, on the one hand, if it's a new feature, then yeah, absolutely. It's Greenfield. You have all sorts of options and ideas. You can explore, see how things go, if they work well or if they don't. Something that's known is much easier because you know the business logic, Mm, you know the rules, you don't have to figure them out as you go along. And you can figure out, can I replicate this in the cloud? Or how does this need to be different? In the cloud. Now I, I talk a lot about serverless and I haven't only I've only mentioned that word like once in this whole podcast so far. That's kind of shocking to me. because <laughs> I talk about it all the dang time. That's a great way to get started, right? Is take a piece of functionality, put in a Lambda function, hook it up to an SQSQ or S3 or whatever else other services you might need to do this, and you build a cloud-based function that requires no management, you know, no cattle, no pets. It gets invoked as you need it, uh, and it's wonderful. And and for me, I think that's been, for my team and myself, the easiest thing to do, like say, okay by and large we want to do things that are kind of similar to what we've done in the past or there's really clearly defined business logic around this one of our but I'll say one of our first big projects that we did in AWS in a purely serverless way was a video transcoding translating transcribing service and we weren't doing that locally because we didn't have the compute or know-how how to do it but we did it all serverlessly in AWS and that was totally new functionality for us and we use it every day and it costs us a good chunk of money because we use it super heavily for the work that we do, but it's totally worth it because I don't worry. I don't have to build a translation service. I don't have to build a transcription service. I don't have to build a video transcoding service. All that stuff is there and I can piece it together. And I did, and that was great. And that was all new functionality. But the stuff that we're talking, I was talking about now, the project that we're currently working on, we have all the business logic. We have to figure out how to map that to AWS. And that's its own special challenge, right? Uh, because we're building all these sort of flows and workflows and paths and lots of little pieces of functionality that were a series of ColdFusion components and functions and Cold ColdFusion components before. And that's good too, because it allows my team to say, ah, I know how this is supposed to work, how do I make this work inside of AWS? And they learn that way because there's less to figure out. I'm not figuring out all the business logic. I know the business logic. I just got to figure out the component pieces and how they fit together, the component services and how they fit together. So again, I think it depends there, though I would probably lean towards the, take something existing, figure out how to replicate it in the cloud because that way you don't have to worry about the business logic side of things.
0: That makes sense. Plus if you, I mean, this is not a great example, but you can always, Send to both almost, like yeah. send to the old and to the new, and then Absolutely. once you're confident that the new results match the old result, and you can start moving more traffic over. Right,
2: make it With a feature, feature flags. flags. That's the strangler pattern at work right there. Right, you slowly <laughs> strangle the amount of work that's going to the old, old service and push it. Over. And it's safe. It's safe. If something blows yeah. up, you, you solve the it or... in the old
0: service one thing that I struggle with wrapping my head around and it's because I I don't really have a lot of experience with any of this stuff. We have teams at work who are much more forward facing when it comes to the new technology. But one thing that I'm always wondering about with Amazon Lambda is how dumb a function should be. Meaning Mm -hmm. for example, let's say you have a a Lambda function that pulls a file down from S3, does something to it, and then pushes it up somewhere. Like, Mm -hmm. Almost in an ideal world, that Lambda function shouldn't even know where it's pulling from or where it's pushing from. Like part of the message that it receives should have like, here's the S3 URL that you're pulling from and here's the S3 URL that you're putting to. And like you could run like a whole bunch of different services can now use you to do this thing. But I I assume that then adds another level of complexity that now you have to pass data to that. And I don't know, like what's your strategy? How closely coupled... I don't even know what the right terminology is. Like, how tightly coupled should the lambda function be to its contextual usage versus Mm -hmm. like how completely pure function should it be?
2: That's a great question. And I tend to err on the side of cohesion for the task more than anything else. Uh, I don't believe in giant Lambda functions that do like you know, 17 different things based on the parameters that are passed into them. And I understand why people do that um, because they haven't learned about step functions. <laughs> they haven't learned about the, the fact that you could do like branching and code. workflows in there. Uh, leave that to step functions, leave that to an external service or environment or another sort of controller function, although that's a bad idea. So, I mean, if, in the example that you gave where it's like pull a file, do some manipulation, put it back. I keep that, I think by and large, most of the time I would say, put that all in one function unless that manipulation or transformation is really complicated and in that case you'll want to say well it can also depends on the runtime because mm. if you are you can't really use, you can't pass file instances like say across step function, steps in a step function workflow, which is a lot of times what we use for orchestration Mm -hmm. um, because it's really, I think the best available of the available options in AWS. Or even if you have Lambda functions that are chained to one another, either by direct invocation, which is a terrible idea, don't ever do it, or through uh, destinations. (laughs) So on success from one Lambda function, you'll invoke another function, which is perfectly fine and good. You can do that or talk to EventBridge, send a message to EventBridge and then it'll get picked up by another Lambda function. You still can't pass Pass file instances in there. So at the end of the day, again, this is kind of specific to files, yeah. you have to pull it into that function. You're right, going to have right, to read right. it back into that function kind of no matter what. And maybe that's a better option for a shared library than a separate function that's reused again and again. On the other hand, yeah, I, I think I tend to look at it more like tasks. So we do a lot of zipping of mm-hmm. files inside of Lambda because we're doing stuff in S3. S3 uh, is not a, it's not an, a, it's an object store. It's not a file system. So you can't like point, for example, in ColdFusion, you can't point you can not say cf zip this directory doesn't work that way right Um, you actually have to like pull each of the files in so one by one which is tedious and awful but we can try to make that function more generic like here's a payload zip it up regardless of where those files are as long as you have permission to do it go ahead and do it so i think it's more about shared libraries than trying to in some ways than make really, really small functions but the function should perform the task and absolutely no more. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah.
0: And and as you're articulating that, I think I also kind of come up with a different way to phrase the question a little bit. And I don't know if this adds any color, but like imagine you had a team that came to you and said, hey, we need a Lambda function to do X, Y, Z for a process that we're working on. Do you think a good default would then be to think, okay, you want to use it for that, but how can we think about this function that any team might want to use it to do something similar? Or should you just solve it for that team first and then not worry about it being generic?
2: Yeah, I'd solve it for that team, for that first, team first. To be perfect. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because again, for some of the stuff, you know, the way, especially looking at sort of like event bridge or step functions, which are these sort of orchestration you know, environments that AWS provides for you if you want to use them, more and more they're directly integrating with other services. So two years ago, three years ago, two years ago, you had to write a Lambda function to insert a record into DynamoDB. Now you can just do it from within the step functions workflow itself, right? You just say, insert record, here's the data I want to insert into this DynamoDB table, and you're done. There's no more Lambda function even needed for that. So over time, you're going to see more of these kind of direct service integrations, no-code integrations is what some people call them, so you don't have to write separate functions for them. So for me, I'm like, for some things it's going to be easy to abstract it away and to say, we don't need that function anymore. Right. But let's solve the problem now for these people. And if we see a repeated issue, repeated sort of request, we can work on building something that's a little more abstract. My problem with the sort of abstract functions a lot of times you want up trying to do everything and don't do anything particularly well. No. So I'm like,
0: solve for that problem. Mm. And, and I imagine the hardest part now that you have distributed systems is that there might be code there and it's almost impossible to tell if anyone's even still using it. I mean, like you could see that sure. a function's is being invoked, but like, I can't right. tell you how many times, even in a simple application, you look at arguments for a method and you're like, is anyone even passing these arguments anymore? Mm-hmm. And you search through the whole, yeah. and like <laughs> you find out that everyone's just passing null because like the one person who needed it doesn't need it anymore. And now everyone just passes null. And Oh yeah. And you don't have a single
2: code model right, code right, base, right. Right, to search through. I mean, you could like, clone all your git repos for the entire company and be like search for this you know and across all the git repos and hope you don't break things but maybe that's chaos engineering
3: (laughs) (laughs) so i wanted to I, i was trying to decide whether or not to do this but i think it could be beneficial to the listeners so ben your original question there about like writing a lambda that reads a file from s3 maybe modifies it and writes it back to somewhere I actually have a service that does specifically that. And the only thing that I really want to add to what you guys, I think everything you guys talked about was perfect, but to add to that, like yes. And you have to plan for failure, right? Like that Lambda could Mm -hmm. fail for Mm -hmm. myriad reasons. And part of what we decided, like the boundaries of our Lambda was what's the recoverable case, right? Can, where can we just rerun this Lambda with the exact same message and it'll just
1: rerun. Mm. And that, What's was that word i did idempotent i I idempotent, say i'dempotent. That yes i it yeah. super important yeah yeah
2: adam i totally feel you we you know all the time we mm-hmm. have reads and writes that fail in the middle of you know, oh here's 300 files we're going to try and zip up for example right and it fails to read one of them so what do you do Right. Do you put that back in the queue? Or are there other people waiting for that? Oh, and then you have man. to sort of retry all those things again. And that's where, again, people try to do, write all this, especially in the serverless sort of distributed environment, but serverless in particular, where they'll try to write, you know, all these tries and catches. And it's like, look, use an orchestration engine, use step functions, or just send events via event bridge or sqs queues or whatever you're using so that you don't have to write all of these try success failure catch modes into your code, into your functions. Then you get these giant functions that try to do all of this work when you should be using the native services, the native integrations. Uh, again, step functions is a big one. I hate to be harping <laughs> on it, but it's great <laughs> placed,
3: to do this work for you. You, you tend to be you just replaced on it.
1: serverless with step functions in tonight's exactly I did. Right? I did. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it. Dang it. So so let me tell you my 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 biggest fear is like when you start separating out all these things into different concerns in the, but they're different services it's kind of we had a, a podcast about microservices and the struggles mm. there is when things mm. go wrong debugging mm. right where the issue is because you have so many places you, you've separated everything out There are all different services are different lambda functions there are step functions how do you wrap your arms around figuring out when things go bad where is the bad? Yeah. Yes,
2: that is a challenge. Absolutely. And yeah. there are companies that will take all of your money to help you solve that challenge. I don't right. want to
1: do that. So
2: two things that I try to encourage my team to do, because again, we don't certainly don't have unlimited funds, anything but X-Ray. Oh, so and AWS is a great service so to say, run. Never heard of, of never it. Never heard of X-Ray? No. So it's their distributed tracing service, right? That lets you take a look at a request and see uh, from start to finish uh, what that request was like. uh, What did it do? Like, what are the various services of where it went through? Where were their slowdowns? Was it in DynamoDB? Was it in SQS? Like, how long did each call or each component in the service sort of chain and the request chain actually take uh, and they do it down to by the millisecond uh, and you can you know on a specific request you can like double click and be like oh look here this one took you know, 736 milliseconds but the biggest time was running this DynamoDB scan query scan right instead of a query uh, and that was 400 milliseconds So X-Ray can be very, very powerful. Uh, The problem with it is that it adds a lot of data to things like CloudWatch and you pay for that uh, as you go along. Uh, So you have to use those tools sparingly. And one of the nice things about X-Ray is that it does the distributed tracing. Basically, you're kind of wrapping your Lambda function calls or uh, API gateway requests inside of a larger X-Ray call saying, hey, X-Ray, you're going to trace this whole thing. And there's other companies out there if you want something x-ray is nice uh, they're better more thorough solutions through companies like uh, lumigo or dashboard or datadog even of course but again oh, uh, you're yeah. gonna be paying for it so that's that can be really helpful the other thing to do is put the amazon request id in everything you do in all of your logging uh, even in different mm. lambda functions it's the, it's the poor man's way to do this but if you put it in all the requests, you put in each of your Lambda functions, you can then search through using CloudWatch, right? And, and through the logging, because all the logging is done largely through or through CloudWatch, through Lambda functions at least. Uh, do a query that looks for that request ID, and that'll query all of your CloudWatch log streams. And you can say, oh, okay, here's the missing pieces. Here's the bits and pieces of where things went wrong. It's tedious. It's error prone and it takes, yeah, it's tedious. That's the biggest thing. It's not fun. I mean, debugging a distributed environment, whether you're using a Kubernetes cluster or serverless stuff and Lambda is painful. It is painful, Mm -hmm. Uh, you can't just like do an abort and dump a bunch of stuff in the middle of a request. It doesn't quite work that way. And, but that, so I think those are really the best tools to use in my experience without going to a third party service, um, which would be lovely, but again, that's not within our particular budget. X-ray, definitely check it out and look at it. And service lens is their sort of like superset of X-ray where you say, okay, now we're gonna look at like, you define a whole application and how stuff runs end-to-end, uh, and you can sort of drill down and see where there are bottlenecks and slow requests and the number of errors and all that other stuff. It's definitely worth checking out inside of AWS. Okay. Service. Okay. Lens. All right. Take more uh, notes. Service AWS, lens. Service Lens and X-Ray. Again, this is X-ray. the challenge of AWS, right, Tim? Yeah. You guys, how many times okay. have you said in this podcast, you use a lot of AWS and you're like, what? X-Ray what? Yeah. you yeah, right. Service
1: Lens what? Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. yeah exactly. Okay. There, no, exactly. Yeah. Because they're, again... I know CloudWatch, but I don't use it because it costs right, too much yeah. CloudWatch money. CloudWatch is
2: not cheap, right? And so you got to like no, sample very no. small rates inside of X Ray, so you're not getting five thousand dollar bills a month.
1: Yeah,
3: from watching every single trace. So, through. CloudWatch pro tip: yeah, you can set I mean, uh, retention on every log hmm. is it log group. You can set retention. Yes. So for your QA server, you know, set it for three days or something. Production, do it a couple of weeks. because the default is forever. Yeah,
2: and AWS will charge you for forever, which is great
3: because they make money that way but
2: yeah yeah, absolutely great for them you got it and that's the other thing that no one talks about when you were developing aws is you got to watch your money like a hawk you really do yeah because it's so easy to let some service get out of control and you're like wait why is my bill five thousand dollars this month
1: Yeah, I had a developer, all of a sudden, he's like, you know what? I need to turn this to an extra large service. I'm like, you went from micro to extra large without ch- going intermediate. I mean, like, stop, roll that hey, back. Hey, Tim, be glad it was an
2: XL instead of like on eight times or 16 times XL. right? Right, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. All right.
3: Brian, you've been really generous with your time. We are way past an hour here. Oh, um, well, we are. But uh, thank you so much for your time here. You've been a, a font of knowledge. Um, my pleasure do,
0: do you do any uh, consulting like if anyone is jazzed up and <laughs> yeah
3: like for my-
2: you ben yes for everyone else no. what about my friend uh, sometimes you can hit me up on the twitter uh, i'm always happy to try to answer some questions i'm also like in the cfml slack where i try to answer questions when at a time my life is so busy between mm-hmm. i have i teach really year-round now for hopkins and i teach about you know This year, I think 600 students about in each term, and it's super intensive and fun, but it's great. Uh, So, between that and my children and my family, and uh, so you don't need a fourth job uh, (laughs) the dog and the dog can't forget the dog. I, yeah, I just don't have I wish I had more time to do consulting, but I'm always happy to kind of try and answer questions to the best of my ability.
3: Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, Uh, we are going to call it here. So, Brian, thank you again for your time you said people can reach Thank out to you, you on twitter what is your twitter handle uh
2: it's at brian underscore kloss that's k-l-a-a-s that's my right k-l-a-a-s Ooh. at brian underscore k-l-a-a-s right. in the that's show
1: K-L-A-A-A-A-A. notes that's the dutch yes, version right
2: exactly
3: exactly yes. Yes. cool all right well uh, this episode of working code was brought to you by aws step functions and listeners like you <laughs> 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 if you like what we're doing here you might want to consider supporting us on patreon at patreon.com/slash/workingcodepod to thank our patrons for their support. we They all get an invite to our Discord server where we hang out, chat about podcasts, work stuff, life stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And we have other perks available like early access to new episodes and our after show. Of course, we need to thank our top patrons, Peter and Monty. Thank you guys so much for your support. If paying Thanks, for guys. podcasts isn't your thing, no worries. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. And there are some free ways that you can help us out too. You can share the show with your friends and coworkers, or you can leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please send us your questions and your show topics on Twitter or Instagram at WorkingCodePod or leave us a message at 512-253-2633. That's 512-253-CODE. We'll catch you next week. And until then,
1: your heart matters.
0: You've been listening to Working Code
2: with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.